by far the most controversial figure in all of history is, of course, Jesus Christ. It's by his name that people commit murder. It's by his name that people build hospitals. You might think of St. Joseph, St. Jude, St. whatever. It's by his name that people uh, build orphanages, as in the case of uh, George Mueller. And it's also by his name that people uh, sell toast with his image on it or the image of his mother. People for all, uh, all time, really, it seems like, have seen and understood Jesus as being a, a lot of different things, which is why there's so much controversy surrounding who he is. People always seem to be confused about who he actually, truly is. One of those people is the Jehovah's Witnesses, and they claim that Jesus is uh, more, than just, uh, more than just the Son of God. He's actually Michael the Archangel. And one of the reasons they say that is because he, like so many people in the Bible, has a, a different name. You've got Simon Peter, and you've got, uh, you've got Jacob and, and Israel, and so you also have uh, Michael the archangel and Jesus. They would even point to the text of 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, that says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with, and get this, with the voice of an archangel. What further proof do we need? Jesus is, in fact, the angel, uh, the, the archangel, did I say Gabriel, Michael? Um, uh, Michael the archangel. One of the things that you will have a difficult time doing, especially if you look at a text like this, if you just read it passingly, you might say, well, they're right. They're, they're right. Jesus is, in fact, uh, the archangel Michael. That error actually is, is enough of an error to, to misunderstand Jesus entirely and thus to forfeit any semblance of being forgiven by God, to understand who Jesus is truly. So let's just really quick, just so I can give you some assurance on this, look at the text again. Is it a valid reading to see Jesus as the archangel Michael? He descends from heaven with cry of command. So there's some noise that says, someone's coming. With the voice of an archangel, probably the one who's doing the cry of command. And with the sound of the trumpet of God. So if you're going to say that Jesus is the archangel, you're also going to have to say Jesus is the trumpet. Why is he one and not the other? So all by itself, and there's a few other things we could look at when it comes to understanding Jesus rightly, but just to prove to you how easy it is to totally misunderstand Jesus, to totally get him wrong. And even though that's true today, that really wasn't very different from back in the day when Jesus started his ministry. In Mark chapter 3, we're going to see how people, even those closest to him, misunderstood what he was there about. And part of the misunderstanding is not that they intellectually are unable to grasp who he is. It's that there is a, a sense of unwillingness to their misunderstanding. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, I see what you're doing. But I still don't feel like I, I want to submit to this. This is not my, uh, my desire. I don't, want, I don't want to follow you. What we have to learn is to tell the difference between the right and the almost right, the true and the almost true, or even the true and the mostly true. Uh, you see, the difference when you look at Jesus in the, in the, in the Bible, especially if you go back to just the, the text we're looking at with Jesus being the, the archangel Michael, it's almost true. They give Jesus a very high position in Jehovah's Witness theology. It's just not that high. He's not God in the flesh, he is the archangel Michael. And so when he's exalted later on uh, in, the, in their Bible, the New World the new, new World Translation, what they do when it says that the angels bow down to worship him, they say that the angels uh, pay him obeisance, obeisance. That is, they bow down and they give him deference and respect, but it's not worship. It's a, it's a subtle shift between the right and the almost right, the true and the almost true. And here's the danger. Sometimes if you're not paying attention, you can easily be swayed from seeing Jesus as being this, but not that, this and almost that. Again, Mark chapter 3 is a really good example of that, and it gives us a couple reasons why that takes place. So as we make our way back into the gospel of Mark, I want to remind you, the gospels are what? Historical narrative with a theological, a theological concern, motivated by a theological concern. So let's remind ourselves again, historical narrative. First, it's based in history. This is not a fairy tale. It's not a legend. It's not a myth. This actually took place. This is an historical account, but it's also written in narrative form. It's not just a list of facts and figures. It's written in a story type format. So you have characters, you have a story arc, you have different elements that comprise a story. So I told you last week, the crowd is a character that you have to pay attention to. What kind of character is the crowd? Largely not a good character. They're often antagonistic toward Jesus, and I'll prove to you even more so in this text how that unfolds. Historical narrative motivated by theological concerns. Mark tells you at the beginning of his gospel, he says this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's not neutral. 
And, and here's the thing. You should not be surprised that really someone who's writing a book like this is, is, is claiming, I'm not neutral. And in fact, as a pastor, I'm not neutral either. And neither are you. Let's just all admit, none of us is neutral in this room. And no one who pretends to be neutral is truly neutral. The Bible makes clear distinctions and categories. And Mark is not saying anything different. I, I want you to know Jesus is the Christ, Son of God. And I want you to follow him. Gospels are historical narrative motivated by theological concerns. We're not any different than anyone else in the world who tries to promote an agenda to you. Everyone's got an agenda. Everyone's got a motivation. The gospel's motivation is theological in nature, who we understand God to be and how we respond to him. So with that said, historical narrative motivated by theological concerns. We jump now back into Mark, starting at verse 7 in chapter 3. Follow along with me. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So think again, the mob mentality. People from all over Israel are coming to see Jesus. They're coming from as far as Tyre and Sidon, which is a largely Gentile population. Already, you're seeing people like you and me, different colors of skin, who are saying, I want to know who this Jesus is. Now, the reason they're coming is, is probably because they're hearing about his healing ministry. They want to get a little piece of that, right? If there was a real healer in our area, people would be blasting it all over social media. And we'd be going to him to say, I want my kid healed. I want my mom healed. My dad's got cancer. We've got, you know, I've got an issue. Of course, everyone's going to want to see this guy. Which goes to show you that if someone were really offering miracles and really able to heal people, you would know about that. And it wouldn't just be done in an auditorium with lights and smoke and fog and with handlers who only bring out the right people. That's a side note. But Jesus is actually doing this. And so you have people coming from all over who are mobbing him. And you have people probably who are really intensely uh, caring about his ministry. Maybe not, again, for the right reasons, but it reminded me of like Michael Jackson or, or Justin Bieber. When people get really emotional about seeing their celebrity and their idol, they actually start crying. I admit, I laugh at these people. <laughs> it makes me, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. Why, why am I crying? Uh, when I, okay, so when my hero walks into the room, I may get like starry-eyed to be excited, but I don't start crying. <laughs> oh, you're amazing. And I just want to touch your face. And I just want to, whatever. It's, it's, it's that kind of idea where people are coming to Jesus and it's, it's, it's chaos. They're so excited about Jesus that the Bible says, and the next verse, check this out. They're so excited about seeing him um, he told his disciples, verse 9, to have a boat ready, a small boat, because of the crowd. Why? Lest they crush him. <laughs> for, they had, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him just to touch him. Think about that for a second. They're so excited about Jesus healing people that they're willing to kill the man in order to get healed. They're so excited about it. So it's, it's like they're shooting themselves in the foot. They're so excited. They're rushing over to him, not even realizing, I may kill Jesus. That's okay, as long as they get healed. I mean, really, that's what's happening. So Jesus is wise, and he says, let's get a boat so that as they press in upon me, I can at least be pushed out from the shore, and I can preach to them in that way. Crowd, they don't understand what, what he's really there to do. They want their healing. They're not terribly concerned about what else he wants to do. Verse 11, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. The irony in the book of Mark is that there's three, and I told you this last week, there's three different peaks in the book of Mark, three different climaxes. The first climax um, that re relates to Jesus being called the Son of God happens from God the Father. Actually, if you look at Mark verse 1, Mark says, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But then Jesus the Father says, you are my son with whom I'm well pleased. In this interaction, <laughs> no one in this text says, Jesus, you're the Son of God, except the demons. The kingdom of darkness recognizes who he is. And this doesn't happen again until the very end of the book where Jesus is called son of God again, not by a faithful Jew, but by a Roman centurion. The idea of Jesus, son of God, is a critical theme in the book of Mark. He wants you to understand that Jesus is no mere man. He is a man, but he's also God's favored, special, unique son. So the demons, they come out and they say, Jesus, you're the son of God, and he shuts them up. Why? He doesn't want that kind of publicity. He doesn't want these riffraff demons uh, catering to the idea that he's in league with them, which he's going to fight a little later. 
He's trying to make a point. Uh, I am the son of God, but I don't want your press. I don't want you uh, giving me publicity. I don't want any association with your realm. You're not the right people to speak about me. I care about that. Later on in Acts chapter 16, you have this slave girl who follows Paul around and says, listen to these men. These guys proclaim to you the way of God, the, the, the way of salvation. And what does Paul do? Eventually he says, all right, that's enough. You're done. Get out of here. <laughs> Same concept. Jesus and Paul care about the kind of publicity that he receives, and it can't be from the kingdom of darkness. So he shuts them up, even though they rightly identify him. All throughout this scene, you have people coming to Jesus with the wrong idea about what he's there to do. Is he there to heal? Absolutely. He's inaugurating the kingdom. He's making proof, uh, making uh, claims, and he's proving it by his healing ministry. But what you and I need to be sure of is that when we come to Jesus, we're not crowdsourcing our theology. We're not saying, Jesus, I'll believe in you for this, this, and this, because I heard about it. I thought about it. Everyone thinks this about you. No, don't let the crowd shape your understanding of Jesus. That's the first thing we need to walk away with because the crowd is, is, is fickle. The crowd is uh, malleable. They change. They're, they're high one day, they're low the other. They're willing to follow him insofar as he does exactly what they want. And we still, we still see that today. Part of the problem, young person, is that we are very influenced by the world around us and we rarely recognize it. Uh, according to YouTube, uh, we watch approximately 1 billion hours of YouTube every single day. A billion. I don't know how many years that is, or maybe that's months, perhaps. I don't know. But there's a lot of time being spent on YouTube. I go on YouTube. I even pay for the premium because I don't like seeing advertisements. So $10 a month out of my pocket to watch premium YouTube stuff because I'm there all the time. And I'm sure you are too. A lot of videos have good stuff. They have photography. There's, you know, uh, there's how-to videos. Some of the most popular videos that have billions of views are, you guessed it, music videos. Now, some of the more, more popular channels, the top three or two, two or three uh, second right now is Dude Perfect. Uh, those guys are up there. And of course, no one's, <laughs> I bet you, who's the number one YouTube channel? Call it out. PewDiePie. PewDiePie. No contest. Guys, millions of subscribers above everyone else. If you don't know who PewDiePie is, don't, don't bother. <laughs> don't, you don't need to go look him up. I looked him up for you, and I don't, I, don't, I don't want you to look him up. He's just not the kind of guy that you want to be influenced by. A lot of people say, well, I'm going to watch it because he's really funny. He's really funny. I enjoy seeing him. He makes funny comments. He says funny things. But the guy's profane. And you know that, right? You've seen PewDiePie. He's profane, at the very least. That's on a good day. Worst days, he's other things. My point is, that's the air we breathe. That's the, the messages we hear. That's how we, uh, we learn to think and process. You may not realize that when you're watching those videos or listening to the social influencer, that that's having an impact on how you perceive life. That's having an impact on how you think about the world around you. It's crafting and cultivating a worldview. If you think about yourself like a piece of clay, it's like every cultural influence on you is shaping you to something. It's like, okay, it's causing you to think this way, and it's causing you to, 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 to see the world around you in this lens. That's what a worldview does, and that's what cultural influences do for you. So when it comes to this kind, of, um, this kind of understanding, we have to see that the world around us has an agenda, and it's not a good one. We don't realize the cultural air we breathe. We have to realize that uh, the, the influence they play upon us needs to be filtered through Scripture to help remove the impurities of our thinking. Here's the thing. The culture is often wrong. <laughs> we have to say that. The culture is often wrong. I do, I, I do put on the, the prime filter and the four stars above rating when I do my shopping on Amazon. And I do, I do find generally that the culture, people tend to be right about valuing products. But when it comes to valuing religious systems and valuing truth claims, we're not as good. We're not as good at that. You know, the fact that the, the culture gets it wrong, it can be seen in Mark chapter 8, just a few chapters down the road here. We're going to look at it eventually. But Jesus says to them, who do people say that I am? Who does the crowd think that I am? And you remember what he says, right? Some people say John the Baptist. Some people say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. I, okay, I kind of get Elijah. Like, okay, Elijah was a, I kind of get that, miracle worker. John the Baptist, oh, where'd you get that from? Why John the Baptist? Another prophet? Okay, at the very least, sure. But like the, you see here, I mean, that little interchange, you see that they, totally, they miss it. It's like that Jesus throws the ball right in the strike zone and they, they whiff it. I don't understand that because the culture ten, tends to get things wrong. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus makes the commentary about the culture. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and easy is the way, the way that leads to destruction. And there are how many that go there? There's many, many that go that direction. Jesus says that the way to, to eternal life is a small gate. That's, that gate is Christ. One way, one way only. 
There's others, a lot of others, who go a different direction. And of course, Proverbs 14, 12, wisdom says, there's a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way to death. Point is, you cannot trust crowdsourced information about Jesus. And the thing is, you probably have some of those and you may not even realize it. Some of them are obvious. Culture sometimes says Jesus was just a great teacher. Good morals, had good, uh, good teaching for us, good things to obey and to honor. But when it comes to him being Jesus, the son of God, ruler, creator, uh, the, the, the sovereign one, well, that's not what he's saying. You guys are taking it too far. Another one that's pretty popular is that Jesus was a humanitarian. He cared about the weak and the lowly. And that's true, right? Didn't Jesus care about the weak and lowly? Again, nothing wrong with that. They would also highlight Jesus is a loving God. He's, he's well, if he is God, he's loving. Jesus says that God is love, or well, someone said that somewhere. And we would say, well, yeah, that's true. But we understand that when they say God is love, they're not saying the way we mean it because Jesus defines love, not as airy-fairy, squishy, mushy, like affectionate feelings and sentimentality. We know that Jesus is talking about a different kind of love, qualitatively different, categorically different love that is defined by God himself and not by our affectionate sentimental feelings. Sometimes I peruse Reddit just to see what the atheists are up to um, and different people, (laughs) But, but here's the thing, I, I, do the, I don't, don't follow my lead in this, in this way because they, they can be very mean and very, un, anyway, I'll go through and I'll, I'll look at what they're saying just to get a sense, okay, what is the culture, what are people generally saying is a good argument against Christianity? I want to know what that is because I want to cultivate arguments as I teach to you and preach. I want you to have a good understanding of what the arguments are and how to think through those things. I guess some of the more potent stuff that I see tends to be done in the form of a comic or tends to be in the form of something pithy and short, something that's like, oh, that's sound biteable. That's easy to say, easy to remember. I came across this one, and this is blasphemous, so just so you know. Jesus, Pastor Mike was just preaching about this. Jesus is ascending into heaven, and of course, as he's ascending to heaven, someone writes in the comic, forgive your debtors, love one another. This is how people see Jesus, right? He's a good teacher. He's got good morals. And as he's ascending, someone's saying, what did he say? This is the disciples looking at him and said, something about hating homosexuals and aborters. See what they did there? I mean, you see what they did. But here's why that's potent and why that stings. Because they're essentially saying Christians misunderstand Jesus. They're too focused on this and this, and they're not focused enough on the first two things that he said which in the comic, they make it to be prominent. This is the primary thing Jesus wanted us to do. And I know what they're doing. They're creating a straw man. You know what, you know what a straw man is? When you're creating a straw man, it means you're developing in a form of argumentation that's easily refutable. It's a, it's a way of saying, let me prove to you how you're wrong. And instead of accurately representing the argument, you create a facade of the argument, a skeleton of it that, that's easy to knock over. Straw man, he's, he's weak. That's what's happening here. I also saw this, um, and I didn't, I didn't want to give you the graphic because the graphic was graphic. <laughs> um, it wasn't good. I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. You Christians are so unlike your Christ. Again, what are they doing? Uh, we understand Jesus better than you do. You don't get him. You, you, you study him. You might read your Bible and find pieces and bits about him, but you don't understand him. We understand him. We understand the heart of what Jesus wanted. You Christians are insane. You guys need to be put in cages and taken away because y'all are, are, are whack jobs. You notice what's happening here. The popular opinion of people is wrong. I mean, they're wrong. And the thing is, like, when you have something like this, it's hard to respond to that in a meaningful way when it's not meant to be responded to in a meaningful way. It's just being tossed out there like a grenade, hoping to explode your theological framework. So when it comes to stuff like this, you have to step back and say, okay, I understand that this person, you're not going to argue them to the kingdom. What you're going to do is be in a relationship with them and then talk with them and help them to see what they're so wrong about. But understand, the culture at large has wrong opinions, and you would do well to ignore 99% of those things. Not only that, but the crowd is easily swayed toward evil. The crowd is easily swayed toward evil. In Mark 14, 43, uh, Jesus is being arrested. And remember, Mark is painting pictures of characters here. In Mark 14, 43, it says, And immediately, while he was still speaking, Jesus, that is, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. The crowd is depicted here as evil, coming to kill Jesus. And just a chapter later, in Mark 15, 15, it says, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released to them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus for nothing, he delivered him to be crucified. 
because he was wishing to satisfy the crowd. The crowd went from loving and embracing Jesus to hating him, saying, Jesus, we, we, Jesus, we wouldn't mind if he is murdered, but give us Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the one who hurts people, murders people. We'll take the guy who kills us as opposed to the guy who heals us. Give us Barabbas. Pilate says, what evil has he done? And they shout louder, give us Barabbas. He says, but he's done nothing. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And the crowd kind of gets into a frenzy here. They're easily swayed. We are easily swayed toward evil. That ought to show you the depth of human depravity. It's a word we often throw around, but what that means is that we are inherently broken. We're inherently inclined towards sin. We're inherently evil. Speaking of that, I saw someone also in one of the threads that I was looking at said, I hate Christianity because Christianity made me hate myself. <sighs> okay, okay. Because of teaching like this. Teaching like this that says you're evil. And when I say you're, I mean we're evil. Throwing myself in there too because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Is that not obvious? Why do we have to defend this? This is obvious. It's not obvious if you redefine and blur the line between good and evil. Because Christians are saying, this is good, this is evil. But if our culture says, well, let's, let's just erase that line right there, and let's just say, well, they're kind of the same. Depends on your, your feelings. It's another evidence of the fact that the crowd swayed, easily swayed toward evil. Also should mention to you, and I'd love for you to jot this down, John 3 Verses 19 through 21. Jesus says the reason why we're swayed toward evil. He says, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. They hate the light of God. They hate the word of God because it exposes them. They do not come to the light lest their works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. They want their sins forgiven. They want to be exposed and have their sins alleviated so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. When you're righteous, you have nothing to hide. When you're evil, you have everything to hide because you're crafting a different persona, the external one that everyone sees and the internal one that's really there, the one that has the secret thoughts and imaginations, the one that truly is who you are. Someone once said, character is not what you pretend to be, but what you are when no one else is around. That's what Jesus is getting to. Who you really are is who you are when no one's looking. And the, and the fact is, the fact is, all of us, when no one's looking, we think evil thoughts. We do evil things. We, we, we think that we're hiding and, and we're able to get away with it. But the reality is all of us know what it's like to struggle with sin. We can't not sin. Jesus makes clear. People are often wrong. Crowd is easily swayed toward evil. Can't trust news and pop culture to give you reliable information about anything, much less the person and work of Jesus Christ. Who do we go to? Mark 13, starting uh, 3, starting at verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and he called uh, to him those whom he desired and they came to him. Jesus is now creating a new group of people. These are my people. These are the people that I'm going to be investing in heavily. And, and he appointed, appointed, he chose, selected, appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach, to have authority and to cast out demons. Jesus calls 12 men. 12 is an, a significant number because you remember how many tribes were there in Israel? 12. Jesus is setting aside 12 guys that are now to be the new Israel. They're inaugurating a new kingdom. Not that the old Israel is getting obliterated. We believe that God is still not finished with them. But he's proving by setting aside 12 men, I'm setting up a new kingdom. I'm the leader. These are the followers. These, these guys now represent new Israel. They're going to follow me into my new kingdom, and it's going to be through repentance and faith. This is a new thing. Who are those 12, uh, 12 apostles? Uh, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Verse 17, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges. I got that. Uh, that is sons of thunder. Translation for you. Verse 18, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Jesus sets these guys aside to be first and foremost his hand-picked representatives. In fact, these are the authorized sources for truth about himself. 
These are the guys that he said, I want you to listen to them. I want you to, in fact, he said, they have authority. I'm setting them out to do my work because they are my authorized chosen agents to deliver to you information that you need to know. It's like if you were going to find out information about Steve Jobs, you might choose his authorized autobiography written by Walter Isaacson. You could read the others, which are probably helpful, but Walter Isaacson spent hours with Steve Jobs in the months leading up to Steve Jobs' death. And so Isaacson has the inside scoop, spending countless meals with him, countless hours. He says someone in the, in the biography, spends time with him all the time, authorized biography. The others are probably fine, but that one's the best. In fact, if you really want to get weird, you, can, you know how sometimes if you're, I don't know if they're still there now that I think about it. When you're checking out, sometimes you'll see the tabloids, like these whack job weird stories. It's like, it's like the BuzzFeed of, of news media. It's just weird stuff. Like, oh, that's interesting. I, I want to look at that. Um, tabloids have been around a long time. And the thing is, there's tabloids about Jesus. They're called the Gnostic Gospels. They're not true, but everyone, and it, everyone knows that. Everyone knows they're not true, true, uh, but they're true-ish. And so they're fun enough because they, they could be almost semi-plausible. The thing is, Jesus doesn't want us to go to the tabloids. He doesn't want us to get information from the culture. He wants us to get information from his authorized sources. Well, why? Because they were handpicked representatives. They are his people. They're the guys that he's saying, I want you to carry on my message. They were chosen by him to do his building, his kingdom, new Israel. Which brings up a good point here. I want you to notice in verse 13, actually verse 14. No, verse 12. Hold on. <laughs> Um, in Mark 3, there's a, there's a verse in there that says he called them to himself to be with him. Man, it's in there, I promise. I just saw it. My eyes are just overlooking it at this moment in time. Oh, there it is, verse 14. So they might be with him. There you go, verse 14. Appointed the 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him. Discipleship is first and foremost not about a way of thinking, but a person to be with. It's not about a, a what, but a who. Discipleship is about knowing Christ himself. And that's what's happening here. Jesus says, I want you guys to be with me. Morning, afternoon, evening, and even within the 12. Remember, there's three that he set aside to be even closer, right? He's, he's calling people to himself to be close for the purposes of sending them out. It's a parallel for us, for you and me. But not only are they handpicked representatives, they are discipled by Jesus himself. They're, they're meant to go out and do the things that he's called them to do. And it's really cool because later on, you'll notice that these, this band of squirrely guys become powerful men. Matthew, the tax collector, the traitor of Israel, becomes a gospel writer. He writes a book of the Bible, a pretty substantial one too. And not only that, you have John, the son of thunder, who's calling down uh, fire and wrath from heaven to destroy people, he suddenly becomes the apostle of capital L, love. He's the guy that says God is love. And he, if he loved us, we ought to love one another. He's the guy that totally does a, a 180. He's this rough and tumble guy who suddenly becomes this big teddy bear, a gummy bear for Christ. <laughs> we could do a new ministry, gummy bears for Christ on your campuses. John has a radical transformation. Why? Because he spent time with Jesus. Matthew has a radical transformation. Why? Because he spent time with Jesus. Peter, a fisherman, becomes the leader, the de facto leader of the apostolic band. Why? Because he spent time with Jesus. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders are saying, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. Why? They recognized that they had been with Jesus. Young person, if you want to be a more helpful, powerful disciple, it's spending time with Jesus, being near him, and then really trusting the sources that he's given to us, trusting the gospels, being mastered by the word of God. We constantly, this is, we tell you all that, read the Bible, read the Bible, read the Bible. And the reason why is because that's the, that's the infallible standard of truth. You can't build upon anything more stable than the word of God itself. This is Jesus' design. These are my apostles. These are my people. I want them to write, you to listen, go read the words. That's what Jesus wants us to do. And when we do that, we'll begin to see the Christ of scripture who confounded the people of his day, even the most closest people to him. What's that about? Let's take a quick look at that here. There's two passages. We're going to skip uh, the verses between 22 and 31, or 22 and 30. We're going to look at two passages, 3, 20, 21, and then 31 to 35. Here it goes. Follow along. Then he went home, Jesus, Capernaum, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. So many people, they can't even eat, which is a biological necessity. 
And when the family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, Jesus is out of his mind. Okay, keep that in your mind. And now go to verse 31. Verse 31 says, And his mother and his brother came, and they were, uh, they were standing outside, and they sent to him and called, them, uh, and called him, Jesus. And a crowd was sitting around them, uh, him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Right response to this question or this, this call would have been, All right, let me, let me pause whatever's happening here. Let me get up and go talk to my mother and my brothers. Where's Joseph? He's probably dead. Mom's there. Brothers are there. Maybe sisters are at home. Jesus doesn't do that. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The world at that time would have looked at Jesus and said, I don't get you, dude. I don't understand you. How is that a situation? How does that make sense when this is your biological lineage? In fact, uh, culturally speaking, Jesus had uh, an obligation to honor his family, to esteem them. And yet he says, well, I mean, not that he dishonored them, but he said, that's important, but this is more important. The family of Christ, what well, would be the family of Christ, is, has greater weight and significance than even my biological ties. Family didn't understand him. And that's the thing. If, if, if they didn't understand Jesus, and you're following his footsteps, and you're reading his word, and you're trying to do what Jesus did, will they understand you? Probably not. Point number three, here's, here's what it is. You expect the world to misunderstand your priorities. The life that you want to live for Christ, they're not going to get it, and you shouldn't expect them to, at least in some measure. You got to expect that they're going to say, say things about you and think things about you that aren't true, but it is what it is. The irony about this is that people are, are really, <laughs> our world is excited about people that are fanatic, like this guy here. People can be, oh, this is cool. Look at this guy. He's got his face painted and he's wearing a $100 jersey with some other dude's name on the back. That's exciting. How fun. How cool. Like he took a lot of time to do that, obviously. And no one, no one says boo about that. And there's really not a big problem about that. I mean, it's just, he's a fan. This guy probably spent hours on his face making it look like a baseball and then uh, very precisely drawing images on his head, all of his head. And people look at that and say, well, that's cool. He's a, he's a fan. He's excited. He's, he's probably a fun guy to be around. A guy's willing to paint his face like that. I mean, maybe he should be in youth ministry. He's the kind of guy that you'd, you'd enjoy being around. But no one says boo about that. But the second they find out you're a Christian and you're following the word of God, how are they looking at you? Oh, you're one of those guys. You're one of those people. You got blinders on. You can't even see reality because you're so caught up uh, thinking about God. Get your head out of the clouds, Christian. Get your head out of the clouds. Here's the thing. If they misunderstood Jesus, they called him names, they're going to call us names, they're going to misunderstand us too. It might go something like this. You're taking, you're, you're taking this too far. You're taking this too far, Christian. You, I get it. You want to be religious and it makes you feel good. Great. Do that. But don't go that far. Don't start telling me I'm wrong. Don't start telling this other guy here that he's going to hell because of what your religious system teaches. To that, I would say 2 Corinthians 5.15. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Your, your coach may not understand. Oh, coach, I got to leave early because I have to do small groups or I've got student ministers or whatever else it is. Coach, we have a game. We have a game. Why are you leaving? Well, I got this thing at church. He may not understand. She may not understand that. In fact, they may not even play you. <laughs> You're going to leave early. I'm not going to put you in the game. When you try to tell the coach, well, but coach, here's the thing. I'm a Christian. I want to serve God. I want to give my very best here on the team. But for me to do that, I have to make sure my soul is right, that I'm healthy, that I'm engaging with the body of Christ. And I don't know what you're talking about, weirdo. Just do, do what the rest of us are doing. Get in line. You're taking this too far. Don't you want to go to college on a scholarship? Don't you want to get a good SAT score? Don't you want to what at, fill in the blank? They're going to say that because they don't understand you. You have different spiritual values, different priorities that'll put you out of line with the culture around you. The man also say to this, dude, you're starting to act crazy. You're saying things that, do you hear yourself? Do you understand how out of touch with reality you are? You're not behaving responsibly, his family would have said to Jesus. You're doing things that are just, they don't make sense. And about Jesus, they said, he has a demon. He's out of his mind. But Jesus says this to his disciples before he ascends to heaven. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
part, it's part and parcel with being a Christian. To, to walk in line with Jesus is to walk out of line with everything else around you. That's taking Jesus at his word and doing what he said. They're going to say things about you, and you have to suck it up and say, all right, I get it. And Jesus says, verse 19, if you were of the world, if you were, the, if you were the, walking the way the world walked, no big deal. They would love you. No one's calling out the, you know, the Dodger fans or the Charger fans for being weirdos, but they're going to call you out. In fact, probably if, if one of those fans said, hey, I need to leave early from practice so I can go get tickets for the game or whatever else, they might, oh, cool, get me one. But when you say, oh, I want to go to church, I want to study the Bible, I want to you know, do this event with True North, my church, that's when you're going to start getting pushback. This really defines and talks about the, the countercultural method of Jesus. It, it's, a, it's going a direction that no one else is going, countercultural method of Jesus. But beyond that, we start getting in even more hot water when we start talking about his countercultural message. Look here, verses 22 through 30. 20, excuse me, 22 through 30. Yes, right. Delegation comes from Jerusalem, uh, which is to say that these are kind of official representatives. The, the religious authorities and leaders made decisions about Christ, and they sent a delegation to spread their response to the people. Here's what they say. He, Jesus, is possessed by Beelzebul, another name for Satan, and by the prince of demons, the ruler of the demons, Satan, he casts out demons. <clears throat> These guys came a long way to say this about Jesus. And what you're about to, to read here is a really tough section of scripture, but it's important because this is a critical moment in Jesus' ministry where he says something that ought to leave your jaw dropped, ought to make you feel a sense of woe. Verse 23, he called them to him. I love this about Jesus because he doesn't just say, you guys are total idiots. Jesus says, all right, guys, come on, let's, come here. Let's talk about this. Beelzebub, I'm from Beelzebub. I'm casting out, but come here, let's, let's talk, let's talk. He calls him to himself. And he said to, he said to them in parables, how can, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. It's that whole idea of divide and conquer, right? You, that just doesn't work. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. Satan's a dummy. He's finished. This is the end for him. If that's what he's doing, if I'm, if I'm operating by the power of Satan and I'm casting demons out and bringing salvation and healing to people, then surely he's done because this is counter, uh, this is counter to his method. He's not, he's, he's finished. He's coming to him. Verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house. This is the demon or the, uh, the devil. No one can enter the devil's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus defines himself as the strong man who's entering G, uh, the, the devil's territory, binding the devil and saying, I'm, I'm taking captives. I'm taking people out. You, I'm saving you. You're, you were, you were in bondage to sin. You're coming out now. You, you were blind. Let me give you sight. Boom. Taking you out of the house. He's bound the devil. And now he's coming on the scene and saying, I'm delivered delivering these people. So he's saying all these things to say, how does that make sense to say I'm of the devil? And he knows and they know it doesn't make sense. Really, when you think about it, it doesn't make sense. But the fact that they're not denying the miracles is proof positive that they know there's something genuine about him. Now the situation gets hotter because what he's about to say will, will kind of make, will at least put you in a mental pretzel for a little bit. Think about what he says here. Here's what he says. Truly I say to you, and this is where Jesus says amen or amen. Um, you and I, when we hear a sermon that's, well, maybe we don't. Some churches, when they hear something they like, they might say amen. And they agree with something, amen. We do that because Jesus did that. But Jesus doesn't do it at the end of a statement. He says at the beginning. This is where he says, truly I say to you, amen. Here's what he says. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. Which is to say, all people everywhere, they can be forgiven. And whatever blasphemies they utter, blasphemies of speaking against God, speaking against his authority, his rulership, his power, saying all of that, that can be forgiven. But look at verse 29. But whoever blasphemy, blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. This has often been called, and popularly called, the unpardonable sin. The sin that once you commit it, there's no coming back after that. 
You've committed it. You've stepped over the ledge. It's like you're walking to the very edge of the salvation cliff and just saying, you know what? Say la vie. Boom. What is it? What does it mean? We'll talk about that. But one of the first things I want to point out to you is that often when we're looking at Jesus, it's easy for us to, to craft a domesticated, safe, fuzzy animal Jesus, the one that we feel good about. And what I need you to see is that the Jesus of Scripture, the one who defines his own ministry on his own terms, who doesn't let demons speak on his behalf, that Jesus is one that will, that will at the very least, and I'm using soft words here, challenge and surprise you. That's point number four. You ought to expect that. The Jesus of Scripture is not tame. He's not a kitty cat, thank God. He's more than just a friendly face. He's more than just a humble servant. He is the king. He is the Lord. He is God, a very God. He's the one who is, who was, and is to come. The Bible also says that God is a consuming fire. And it's incumbent upon us never to take him lightly, never to pretend that he is just some uh, you know, flaccid God who's just going to roll over whenever we say, I, forget, uh, you know, I repent of my sins. Take it or leave it. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Sometimes we can, we can be careless with Jesus. When we're reading through scriptures, we're going to the DBR, we can overread, overlook sections like this and, and see just the loving tenderness of Christ and not see the severity of Christ. That his justice does have a perimeter. There is a sense in which you know, he's patient, 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 but there's a sense in which at some point you overstep a boundary. You transgress an area where you no longer have an option to turn away from that. Expect Jesus to challenge and surprise you. I had a friend whose dad was an electrician for years, years. That electrician, he was good at his job, had his own company, but one day, just one day, one singular time, he was careless. And of course, he's doing something, forgot that he didn't turn off a switch, and he electrocuted himself to death. It's kind of like that. You've got to think about Jesus in the sense of electricity, where we love it. We have lights, we know we benefit from it, we have air conditioning, we have all these good things that come from it, but don't ever look at electricity as just something that you can play with, something that you can toy with and not be burned by it or electrocuted. Look at Jesus, we have to understand that we can't be careless with him. Remember 2 Samuel chapter 6, the story of Uzzah carrying the Ark of the Covenant? And Uzzah sees the, sees the Ark shaking. And naturally, you know, you see something that's valuable kind of tipping over. You're going to put your hand out to catch it, right? Uzzah does that, I'm sure. Maybe thinking, man, I don't want, I don't want the Ark of God to touch the ground. So he reaches his hand out and he falls down dead. Because what Uzzah failed to realize is that the ground was more pure and more fitting than a sinful creature like him to touch the ark of God, like electricity. Expect Jesus to challenge and surprise you because he's God of very gods. Here's some of the surprising things, at least one surprising thing I want to bring to your attention. The, the first thing that Jesus says is that all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. Whatever blasphemies they utter, they will be forgiven. This is amazing, guys. This is the gospel. All sins can be forgiven in Jesus Christ. You cannot, you cannot outdo the grace of God. You can't outsin his grace. You, you, you can't put him in a corner where it suddenly becomes, I, I'm, I'm unforgivable. What about the next verse? We'll talk about that in a second. But what he says here is amazing. All sins will be forgiven the children of man. Your sins are forgiven only through Christ. You may be a great sinner, but Jesus is a greater Savior. All sins will be forgiven. That means, of course, the implication is if you come to him with what? Repentance and faith. Real repentance, real faith in Christ. Jesus says, no matter what your sin is, I can, I can release you from that burden because I can take it upon myself on the cross on your behalf. You get my righteousness, I get your sinfulness. That's amazing. That's surprising. In fact, I was reading an article as I was perusing the, the, the threads again, as I told you. Uh, I, I saw, okay, it'd be hard to explain to you, but his issue, the atheist issue, was that God is unjust. That he would allow Hitler to go to heaven if Hitler repented, but he would you know, send someone to hell who was a good person. I understand the struggle with that. 
But here's the thing. Jesus is a great Savior who's willing to forgive anyone, 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 no matter how bad you've been, simply because of his mercy and grace. So much to say about that, but that ought to surprise you. What also should surprise you is that Jesus does promise hell for a certain kind of blasphemy called the blasphemy of the Spirit. He promises eternal hell. No way back. It's like that, uh, that, that Phantom of the Opera song. You're past the point of no return. Once you cross this line, that's it. A couple years ago, um, the Rational Response Squad, I don't know if they're still active or what they're doing, but they, an atheist group who did this thing called the Blasphemy Challenge. The goal was uh, for as many people who follow them to, to do a, a video where they say the words, I deny the Holy Spirit. It's the blasphemy challenge. And the first thousand people got a book or some other cool thing that they were offering. And so the idea was to get as many people as possible to seal their fate with God and say, if there is a hell, let's roll the dice. Let's say it. Let's see what happens. Gives me shivers. Did they commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Did those guys who recorded that video seal their fate and now are promised hell? I think the answer is no. Here's why. Let's look again at the text. I want to point a couple things to your attention that I think are important. It is as severe as it sounds, but it's also not exactly what you might be tempted to think it is. Look at, it, look at the verse again. Verse, verse 28. He says, truly all sins will be forgiven. Okay, that, and then I think he, he means that all sins are going to be forgiven. And then he says the word blasphemies. You know, look at that verse. Do we all, whatever blasphemies they utter. Blasphemy. It's the same word in the next verse. Verse 29. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin for, and Jesus gives clarity of what he's saying here, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Technically speaking, then, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? It is attributing to the devil the work of Jesus Christ that was done through the Spirit. Technically, that's what it is. So in a technical sense, you could say it really is impossible in some way for us to do the same thing because Jesus is in front of us. We can't say, Jesus, you have a devil. Uh, and I guess that's the end of it. Like, we just can't do that. Jesus isn't here. So we have to realize that technically speaking, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is attributing to the devil the power and the work of Jesus Christ. But if you take a step back and look at this text, Jesus is warning them. He's saying, you're close to the edge, Pharisees, scribes. You're close to the edge. You keep going the way you're going, you're going to walk over the edge and thus have no opportunity for repentance and forgiveness. Here's how I get to that. We don't have time to go through this fully, but let me give you the text, okay? Write these down. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. That's that section where it says, It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. That's serious business. I think that's a real, that's a real warning to people. Hebrews chapter 10, 26 through 31. Hebrews chapter 10, 26 to 31. It says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Blasphemy of the Spirit, then, as I'm putting this all together for you, okay? I know this is a complicated situation, but let me just tell you. Can the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit still be committed? Yes. Was it committed by those who on the video saying, I deny the Holy Spirit? No, because that wasn't even the blasphemy of the Spirit. The blasphemy of the Spirit is saying, Jesus is empowered by the devil. He's not the Son of God. He's not Lord of Ruler Elder. He's actually evil. He's not good. He's not a good teacher. He's not a humanitarian. He's evil. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. These guys didn't do that. That's number one. Number two, these guys don't have knowledge. They're actually ignorant of who Jesus is and what he's calling people to do. They have some knowledge. But as Hebrews 10 said, it's those who, who sin deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Those are the people in danger. The people who are truly, potentially walking over the edge are those who know the gospel, know that Jesus is true, have the internal testimony of the Spirit saying, you know this is right, you know this is right, you need to submit yourself, I feel conviction over my sin, I'm guilty, I need to repent and get my life right with Christ. You are the people where I think the Bible would say, you're in danger, here's the sign, right? It's like you're going over the edge of a cliff, there's a blinking sign in front of you, this is it. 
blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, where you're saying, where you're saying to yourself, I, I don't care. I don't want this. I don't need this. And in fact, it's wrong. <laughs> that's, that's what's going on here. Jesus is telling the, the scribes, you guys are so dar- dangerously, perilously close to rejecting me so much that the Spirit will no longer even offer you repentance. You've so, dis- dis- uh, you've so dishonored the Spirit. You've so squashed him. You've so belittled him. You've so dishonored him. Because you point to me and say, I'm not who I say I am. Remember, Jesus' entire ministry was empowered by the Spirit. Jesus was, remember, he got baptized. Father says, you're my son. And then the Spirit descends upon him. On top of that, he gets up. Suddenly, in the second section there, he's driven to the desert by the Spirit. Jesus' entire ministry was dwelt by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, in submission to the Father. Jesus did nothing of his own accord. Everything he was doing, the Spirit was doing it. And so when he calls people to repentance and faith, he's saying, all the blasphemies you utter you could be forgiven. In fact, even saying, I deny the Holy Spirit, you can be forgiven because you did it ignorantly, which is what Paul said, right? I persecuted the church of God, but I did it ignorantly. That's the difference, I think. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a matter of willful, rebellious, hard-hearted rejection of Jesus. Willingly and knowingly having the awareness that Jesus is more than a man and knowing full well that he is the Son of God, being convinced internally this is the Spirit's work, and still saying, no. That ought to cause us to tremble a little bit and say, if I'm not following Christ, I feel that repentance, I feel, I feel the desire to repent, and I'm not going to do it, I ought to tremble just a little. Because the moment I stop caring, the moment I stop feeling that desire to run to Christ is the moment that I may be walking over the cliff. We talk about the patience of God. He's patient. He's gracious. He's kind. He can forgive all sins. He can forgive. If you've cursed God in your heart right now and you're ignorantly doing this, you don't realize how kind he is, I think you could still be forgiven today, right now. Repent. Trust Christ. But I do believe that the text teaches, along with Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10, 1 John 5, the sin that leads to death, there is a time when the Spirit will stop, will stop giving you the opportunity to repent. It's like Esau who though he sought the blessing with tears, was nonetheless rejected. He wanted to be right, but he knew it was too late. He stopped seeking after. He didn't have anything in his life that wanted to repent. So you might ask, did I commit the, did I commit the sin of uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? If you care, if you care about the fact that you might have blasphemed the Spirit, you probably didn't commit it. Because the person who's guilty of this sin is the one who no longer even cares about that. He doesn't care if he's called God a liar, the devil. It's all fairy tales anyway. I don't care. I don't want anything to do with that. Jesus says some very challenging and surprising things, doesn't he? Repent while you can. Turn to God. Today is a day of salvation, not tomorrow. This is the gospel of Mark. His intention in this particular section is really to drive us to the point that you can't craft Jesus in your own image. You accept Jesus on his terms. And he gives you who he is. He gives you what his terms is through his scriptures. So let him be defined by that. I said a lot this week, the sermon, but here's your one big takeaway that I want you to, to do something with. This week, before Wednesday, by Wednesday night when you come to small groups, I want you to read the gospel of Mark. Fresh eyes. Go through the entire, it's only 16 chapters. It's really easy, really quick. Read through the gospel of Mark. Let Jesus challenge you, surprise you, take him on his own terms. Don't follow the crowd's understanding about Jesus. Understand him from the scriptures. Like a good Berean, I want you to even test my words. Examine the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. You ought to hold me and everyone else around you to the standard of the truth of of scripture. So this week, your one takeaway from the sermon, the one thing I'm asking you to do is to read the Gospel of Mark and come on Wednesday prepared to discuss this and your reading. Let's pray.